todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. My guest today is a true legend who I am honored to speak to. June Millington is a founding member and the lead guitarist for the first all-female rock band, Fanny. Fanny was formed in 1969, and they paved the way for higher-profile bands like the Runaways in the 1970s and the Go-Go's in the 1980s. As the saying goes, the pioneers take the arrows, and as such, Fanny isn't a household name. But a brand new beautifully made documentary film, Fanny, The Right to Rock, hopes to bring better awareness and garner new fans. I'll also talk with June about her memoir, Land of a Thousand Bridges, Island Girl in a Rock and Roll World, as well as what she's doing to nurture young women who want to rock. Welcome, June. Hi. But I'm going to start sort of at the beginning, um, back in the 60s. Um, what made you want to pick up a guitar and to be a musician? It wasn't uh, really a common ambition for women in the 60s. Uh, well, you know, Gene and I played ukuleles in the Philippines and we were totally hit with the music bug. So it was already happening for us when we moved here and we switched to acoustic guitar and then uh, we started a, a band with electric instruments around late 64 with a girl who called us up and said, hey, I play drums. You want to you want to start a band? And we hadn't thought of that, but we said yes and we were off. Uh, who were some of your influences as a guitarist? Well, you know, all the early funk masters. <laughs> you know, some of them are uh, unknown. For example, Rufus Thomas's Walk in the Dog was a huge influence on me. All the, uh, all the Sam and Dave records. Yeah. So, so, then, yeah. so then George Harrison and, you know, the Beach Boys, the, the Beatles, um, for sure, Jimi Jimi Hendrix was huge. You know, I mean, it was anybody who was good whom I could hear on the radio or on, on a record. I mean, I was really, I studied music. I studied um, funk and pop music as an outsider, and I loved it. So I really ap applied myself. Um, now, did you have a favorite guitar that you liked to play? 
Well, you know, I always have my favorites. I think the first electric guitar that I bought and absolutely fell in love with was a Mustang. Uh, Mustang guitar, fabulous. And now I have a Les Paul 57, but I also have a Taylor. I mean, I have a lot of great guitars and I've fallen in love with a lot of amazing guitars. So, um, you know, that's kind of a hard question to answer. I bought a Stratocaster on the first fanny tour from a kid in Memphis and I still have that guitar and I adore it. So, yeah, I mean, guitarists, uh, often even name their guitars. I mean, they get so close with them. It's almost like having a spiritual relationship with this instrument. Yeah, I don't, I don't give them names. When Fanny was performing, you were opening for some pretty major rock acts. We had really great management and, uh, uh, you know, they hired great booking agents and we would go off with pretty much whomever they paired us up with. And that was a lot of, a lot of acts. So they were in the biz and, um, and, and as such, we were booked, uh, inside that, uh, music biz circle that was kind of high echelon so we played with uh you know like Mavis Staple well the Staple Singers um Dr. John the Night Tripper uh I mean anybody you can think of who was around back in the day we we did a tour with Chicago for example so you know I mean it was um getting gigs I think was their business and the management and booking people's business and our business was to play as well as possible and keep improving and that's what we did so it was in, in fact teamwork I saw in the documentary that you also opened for Ike and Tina Turner I, I think the people in London tried to ban us from that gig because they didn't like our outfits they thought they were too skimpy and in fact I didn't like those outfits Warner Brothers uh, forced us to um, go with a designer and wear skimpier clothing. So, uh, you know, I'm not even sure if we did the gig. I mean, I first saw Ike and Tina Turner when we were in high school, Gene and I in Sacramento. And I remember watching them from, uh, the, you know, the second story, the balcony at this huge uh, hall in London. Whether or not we played that night, I honestly can't remember. But the more, more... Uh, you know, to the fact was the fact that we were banned or they tried to ban us from that gig because of what we were wearing. <laughs> well, didn't Tina have some pretty skimpy outfits? They didn't seem to mind her. Wow. I mean, I thought that was very interesting uh, points that were brought up in the documentary that, um, you know, you were kind of lauded for being unique as women in the rock music world then but also denigrated for it they're terrible about being denigrated not just by the critics but the audiences from 1964 on it was a terrible experience to have people put you down like that especially people who a couldn't play and b if they were in a band we were usually better than them so you know we were young ambitious and talented women and we didn't want to take that but we kind of had to because we you know, there was, they were always trying to do a TKO on us. <laughs> I didn't feel good at all. No, of course not. Yeah. I'll tell you, the really good musicians loved it. Okay, so Skunk Baxter, Lowell George, Jesse Ed Davis, you know, people of that caliber, even, even uh, George Harrison, you know, we met him in London because we were recording at the Beatles studio with Jeff Emmerich. They all loved us. So... 
that's kind of what I stuck with. You know, Jeff Beck, people of that caliber, they adored us. And that's what I listened to and stayed with, with just the comfort of being around them, you know. Um, because they were, they were just fine with it. In fact, they loved being with chicks who could play as well as we did. Yeah, I think that was really brought home with the uh, caliber of interviewees that are in the documentary. Um, how did the documentary come about initially, and how long has it been in the works? Well, Bobby Joe contacted me maybe around, well, she saw me at the Women's March in uh, 2017, so she had to have caught, called me around 2015 with the idea of doing a documentary really on me and, and peripherally Fanny and IMA. And because she saw an article on me on the um, Taylor Guitars website. And then she was supposed to come down here. She didn't call. And I thought, oh, well, she's dropped the whole thing. You know, she's whatever. Because that happens to me a lot. People will call me up, be all excited, and then they won't call back or they won't show up when they're supposed to. All right. So I thought she just, you know, whatever. And then she saw me at the Women's March uh, in Washington and she saw me on the big jumbo screen and she thought, oh my God, I've got to call her. So then we picked up all, picked it up all over again. And by that time we were just about to start recording Fanny Walk the Earth. So she happened to walk in at the right time. Yeah, she did an amazing job. Um... Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to collaborate with Bobby Joe and what she brought to the table as the filmmaker? Well, I, I really kind of tried to stay out of it because that's her job. Uh, you know, she told her story and uh, she would ask me for photos and like the that film of the Svelts, that, that came from me and I cooperated with all the interviewing and the, uh, you know, the uh, shows that, that she videoed. But she kept us out of the loop because she's doing her own film, right? She's doing her version of her story of Fanny. So I had to stay out of the picture in that way because she wasn't interested in collaborating at all. So what was it like for you to see the film for the first time? I mean, I had a lot of feelings. I, I felt that some people were left out unfairly, but, um, you know, it's such a big story. There's so, so much depth to it and so many layers that a second documentary can be made, maybe I'll do it. I mean, you know, women's music is pretty much left out of the picture. It's such a big story to contain, and I think that she did a good job with what she decided to focus on. You know what I'm saying? Because it's really a huge story, and it spans decades. You know, it's at this point, it's spanning, you know, 50 years or over 50 years, so that's a big deal. And I think... Um, you know, if you look at it from that basis, she did a great job. She did an excellent job. I agree. Um, I made a documentary about my dad's band, The Ventures, which is a oh. surf guitar. Yeah. So yeah, our, yeah, that's also a story that spans many decades, but the film is about an hour and a half. And I think that's really what the viewer, you know, that's about their tolerance level. Now, in the documentary, The Right to Rock, uh, you also, you know, your sister is also included and it ends on sort of a, a bittersweet note. So how is Jean these days? Oh, she's hanging in there and I'm, I'm always uh, raising money to help with her therapies and her, you know, day-to-day -day, uh, sort of ha having to <laughs> endure not being able to move the right side of her body. So she's she's got 
uh, stuff that she needs to put on. She needs to help her and all that kind of stuff. But she's doing the work. So, you know, we're hoping at some point it's just going to start clicking in. Um, she can talk. She sang with us in L.A. So she's here and she's doing well, I think. You know, it's hard for us all. I miss her terribly on stage. You know, I do gigs either by myself or with other people. And it's nobody plays like Gene, I have to say. I heard that you have a memoir out and you're working on a part two. So uh, what's in that memoir and uh, how can fans buy it? It's called Land of a Thousand Bridges. And that's a takeoff from the song Land of a Thousand Dances, which we played, I don't know how many times in the Svelts. So it's called Land of a Thousand Bridges. You can only get it through the nonprofit that I co-founded for Women and Girls in Music, which is called the Institute for the Musical Arts, or IMA for short. So anyone who wants to order that book, uh, go to IMA.org, not caps, lowercase, www.IMA.org, and you can get Land of a Thousand Bridges. You can also get my new album, which is called Snapshots. Actually, you would love that. You ought to get it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And um, I'm sitting here at the, in the IMA house in the living room. We have 25 acres, a house and two barns, and one of them is outfitted to be a performance center. We do our rock and roll girls camps there in the summer, which, by the way, are on for this year. So anybody who's interested in that, um, it's, it's such a wonderful program. And it's, you know, there's only one little period of time in a girl's life when you can get to them in the way that we do with music here it's not a drop-off camp they stay uh, 24-7 for either five days for preteen or 10 days for teen we have two recording studios which is where i recorded most of snapshots so it's a, it's a huge operation and it's super important because we're passing it all down to future generations so ima.org is seriously the place to go and if you want to help gene out uh in the whole fundraising thing help her out support her write her a note even if you just sent five bucks that's fine so you go to uh um gofundme.com slash it's easy to remember gene dash millington dash go fantastic and i love how you're doing your part to sort of write the historical wrong that was done to fanny with nurturing young women uh now who want to play guitar or bass or any kind of instrument and you really uh foster that dream and that talent. When did you start that? Well, we founded IMA in 1986, 1986. I heard voices in my head, you know, and they told me to get going. And I'm like, oh my God. I talked to Angela Davis about it, the, you know, the revolutionary. And she told me to get going. I was so scared. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a organizer, but she said, you know, they're talking to you. So, okay. <laughs> So, 1986, yes, and then uh, we had a place in Bodega, California for about a decade, and then 9-11 uh, happened, and we were, we managed to buy this property in 2001, and we just started our Rock and Roll Girls Camps in 2002. So, a lot of the time uh, when IMA was founded was spent on just planting the seed and matriculating, you know, trying to grow up without um, imploding under too much visioning and so this place is here it, it's real we're passing it on you know and um in fact there's a girl who who's attended a bunch of our, of our camps that just waved goodbye to me she she came here for a couple of days to visit so it's um it's really vital and vibrant 
Yes, I can definitely see that in the documentary, The Right to Rock. Um, what do you hope that viewers will take away from Fanny, The Right to Rock? Well, when they see us, you know, they, they see this steely determination to live our vision through, to make it happen. You know, there's, there's a huge uh, difference between, oh, I have a dream, right? I have a dream to be in an all-girl band, which Gene and I had. We definitely had that dream beginning in high school or even late junior high. We wanted to be in an all-girl band and we never deviated from that. And we stuck through it and we just practiced and practiced. We got better and better. We learned from everyone we could. And, uh, you know, having that uh, talent, I'm telling you, the talent and the ambition and not stopping, not ever stopping to go, oh, woe is me, nothing is happening, so on and so forth. You just learn the next thing and you get off on that. I think that's really important. Plus now we have the vision of passing this place on and we're making that happen. And where can people see the documentary now? It's opening up all over the country so and the world actually. It is opening all over the world. And then I think next year probably I'll go into streaming. It's, I'm sure, a wonderful uh, big screen experience, but it also has an intimate feel. So if people are watching it at home when it comes out on streaming, I think it'll do just as well. Yeah, yeah, I do too. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And you're very welcome. Anybody can write to me at June Millington at Gmail, by the way. Oh, all right. Okay. Love it. All right. Bye. Take care. As always, before I go, I'm going to read a passage from Rock and Roll Nightmares, True Stories, Volume 1. The book has been out for a month now and is still holding at number one in Amazon's books about music category. This is from the chapter, Flirtin' with Disaster. Judy Sill isn't a household name, but it's not for lack of talent. For a brief time in the early 70s, Judith Lynn Sill, born in Studio City, California on October 7, 1944, was LA's most promising soft rock artist. She was one of the first musicians signed to Asylum Records, a label David Geffen started with Elliot Roberts. Asylum soon became famous for its roster of Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, and Jackson Brown, to name drop a few. Judy was produced by Graham Nash, and her songs, sometimes described as Baroque pop, were covered by the Turtles, the Hollies, and Cass Elliot during her lifetime. The I'm Over singer's life was one of tumult. As a child, she was simultaneously neglected and abused by her mom and stepfather, who both worked long hours in animation at various Hollywood studios. As a teenager, she robbed liquor stores armed with a 38 pistol. She learned to play piano in a bar, then organ in reform school. She was openly bi in an era when other musicians only hinted and teased at their sexual personas. She drove dangerously, involving herself in several car accidents. This recklessness is certainly at odds with her soft, hazy, poetically orchestral-influenced music. Sill was a conundrum, wrapped in a riddle for sure. Still, few could predict how it would all come to an end.
This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacy Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B O O K S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time.